0: issues, but we're we're good to go. Just bear with me one more second, and uh, we'll get this get this show on the road. Center Alt Delete Shift Apple Ten Okay. Enter. Okay. Yeah. Well, no, it'll work. Don't worry. I'm not. I'm not concerned about that. Apple. All right, well, this is coming up, and here we go, so you don't look, okay, <laughs> <laughs> um, hello. Uh, thank you for coming uh, this early morning to our session, Choosing a New Path, Alternative Uses for Historic Sites. Um, My name is Ken Torino, I am the manager of community engagement and exhibitions at Historic New England. Um, I will tell you about myself and the speakers in just a minute. I do want to let you all know that we are doing a podcast with this. I've never done a podcast, so this is a new experience for me. If we're going to ask you to hold questions to the end, and we do have a microphone, so we'll ask you to speak in the microphone. And I have been designated to be the person to run around with the microphone. Um, And uh, let me just tell you a little bit about myself and uh, talk a little bit about today's session. as I said, I'm with Historic New England, and Historic New England is the largest regional preservation organization in America. We own 36 historic properties in five of the six New England states. Uh, we will get to the sixth New England state eventually, uh, that being Vermont, um, and uh, as part of my position there, um, I work with communities throughout New England as well as our exhibitions program. Today's session, we'll discuss one of the central questions uh, in the museum field today, the future of, future of our historic houses. And, you know, for too long we have looked at historic houses as if they were under glass, um, with the only way to preserve them is turning them into museums. I thought uh, this example I found is quite literate, literal. Um, many of us are now realizing that turning these sites into museums may not be the best way to serve your community. Um, As consultant Barbara Silberman, who chairs ASLH's Historic House Committee, reminds us, the point with these houses is preservation. What we don't want to see is these houses falling to the wrecking ball. And as we know, all too often happens. Now, in the last few years, there have been numerous articles, publications, and conferences on alternative uses for historic houses. And um, this being just one, if you haven't picked up new solutions for house museums, I urge you to, uh, Donna Harris is actually with us here today. There she is. Um, and um, I don't know, has it? did anyone see the Rochester papers this week about the Rochester Historical Society? I think some, someone's nodding their head. And uh, what, when I got into Rochester, I picked up one of the local papers, and lo and behold, the local historical society, the Rochester Historical Society, is actually selling their headquarters a historic house into private use. Uh, it has about a million dollars in deferred maintenance, the article said. Um, they're selling it. They sold it actually quite quickly into private use uh, with historic easements put on the property. Uh, that's just one example of what's happening um, all over the country. Uh, this uh, conference itself has been offering several sessions on topics ranging from how government owners of historic museums have repurposed their site to Lincoln's Cottage use of technology to enhance their guided tours. Now, I was very fortunate to attend the Kiket, um Forum on historic stewardship um, that took place in April 2007 and it was on historic site stewardship in the 21st century and I see that there are a few people here today who attended that and that was organized I think I saw Jim Vaughan walk into the room um, I wanted to start this presentation by just pulling out some of the excerpts from the uh, report that came out of Kiket. Uh Some of you may have seen this presented at the National Trust but I think it's important, and because this is a podcast, I'm going to read these. Um, so, uh, historic sites are important. We all know that. That's why we're here today. Uh, there are a growing number of these historic site museums, yet, and we hear about this all the time shrinking audiences for the traditional historic site museum experience. And these sites are going to need to make fundamental changes if they are to survive as museums. Historic sites do not necessarily have to be a museum to be successful and sustainable. There are viable alternatives, and that's really what we're gonna be talking about today. These were some of the findings, and I just, again, did excerpts. I'm not giving you the whole, uh, all the material that's presented. Successful stewardship of the nation's historic sites requires financial stability. And stability begins with each site's engagement with its community and its willingness to change its structure, programs, and services in response to the changing needs of that community. And we'll be talking about that today, too. Serving the needs of the local community is the most valuable and most sustainable goal for most historic sites. And um, if you, a couple more. Innovation, experimentation, collaboration, broad sharing of the resulting information are essential to achieving historic historic site sustainability on a broad scale. And undefined collecting couple, coupled with professional standards and practices regarding deaccessioning are an impediment to change in sustainability. We'll be talking about uh, issues related to that today. And returning sites to private ownership with proper easements can be a positive means of assuring long-term stewardship. And that too we will touch upon in our presentation today. Um, those Findings are uh, have been put together, and the latest uh, issue, of forum journal, came out in spring of 2008 uh, by the National Trust for Historic Preservation, Americans Historic Sites at a Crossroads. If you have not picked this up, you really do need to pick this up, and you can get that through the National Trust. Besides the full findings and key points, uh, there are really informative and very, very useful articles for people who are considering what to do with their historic sites or alternatives to traditional use as well as people who are evaluating um, properties that are considering becoming museums. And really, um, that's what today's session is going to talk about. It's going to look at the process, and that's what we're beginning to look at, the process that three organizations followed to preserve their properties and best serve the needs of their communities. And as you will see, in the case of these three uh, sites, it was by not becoming a museum. Uh, These three properties uh, went through uh, a process, and many of them are still in process. They're in different stages. You're going to hear about rock rest, which is really in the formative stages, and then the Wakefield estate, which is several years into their transformation. And then lastly, I will come back and talk about the Fog rollins House, which is ending, uh, coming to the final stage of what has been a very, very long process. Um, And we'll talk about some of the questions that have come up when we were working with our sites and the answers, the questions and the answers that, that came out of our questioning what should be happening with these sites. Now I'm going to introduce um, our speakers at this point uh, in the order that they'll be speaking. Uh, First is Valerie Cunningham. Uh, Valerie is the founder and executive director of the Portsmouth Black Heritage Trail, a walking and driving tour of 24 designated landmarks representing more than 360 years of black history in New Hampshire. Valerie's organization offers a tremendous amount of programming, symposium, teaching workshops, and they advocate the preservation of historic sites in the region. Uh, One such site was the Pearl Street Church, the home of the state's first African-American congregation. and It is now protected by a preservation easement and recognized by the National and State Register of Historic Places. Valerie's going to talk about her current project, uh, Rock Rest in Kittery Point, Maine. So with that, I'm going to turn this over to Valerie. Okay. Great.
1: Thank you, and good morning. Uh, I also want to add the uh, publication that Ken referred to, the National Trust publication, also uh, has an excellent article about uh, heritage tourism and how it fits into this topic of discussion. Rock Rest was a summer guesthouse in Kittery Point, Maine, not with a water view, but within a mile as the seagull flies of the Atlantic Ocean. A secluded beach and marinas and a quaint country store were, and still are, just down the road apiece. Historic house museums are everywhere in this coastal region of New England in, uh, um, <laughs> okay, these are going to be a little out of order, so we'll we'll manage. In 1938, this 100-year-old main cape was up for sale. It didn't look like this. Um, do you, is there a way to go forward and backward on here? Or, you want to go? I, well, I want to go to the original house.
0: I'm not sure where it is.
1: Well, never mind. Let's not yeah. get too. Mm, technology is not that great. <laughs> uh, Okay, if I need it. I'm not going to worry about it. In 1938, this hundred-year-old Maine Cape was up for sale. It had two rooms. It had a dirt floor cellar, no running water, and no electricity. It was a dilapidated shack on several acres of land with abundant pine trees and wildflowers. Clayton and Hazel Sinclair bought it. It was all they could afford. Clayton was a chauffeur. She was a maid. That they were able to purchase this piece of real estate on their meager wages was not so unusual at that time in American history. What makes this story so compelling, if not unique for Northern New England, is that this African American couple was able to transform this place into a comfortable, cozy home uh, that would also accommodate black vacationers at a time when they were not welcome elsewhere. And this is when you're supposed to see this one. The, the one that you didn't see (laughs) is the, the, it might be next. And no, it's not next, but it's probably in there someplace. So you'll get to see the original shack. After two years in 1940 it's the house that you just saw uh, Clayton had rehabilitated the house Put in hardwood floors a bathroom electricity and a small kitchen that met with Hazel's approval They finally moved in and From that time on they began to take in guests expanding the house and a dual purpose garage which you see now and uh, at first it was a uh, at first it was a casual arrangement for guests to sort of drop in from as far away as new jersey, pennsylvania, new york. They knew the sinclairs because uh, originally because they all had been maids and chauffeurs together with the summer people who visited uh, the coast of Maine. And so as th- these people went back home to New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and elsewhere, um, uh, they, uh, the word spread that this black couple in Maine had this nice little house. Uh, that was available if people wanted to have a vacation in Maine, and, you know, through word of mouth it spread. So uh, that's the way African Americans typically traveled any place in the country prior to the Civil Rights Act of 1964. When you couldn't get a room in regular hotels, you'd call a family at your destination that had been recommended by word of mouth, or you could consult the Negro Motorist Travel Guide also known as the green book Uh, and this is the way rock rest looked in uh, around 1958 it was pretty well established by this time as a guest house and it was not um, in the green book because it was small had limited capacity and usually filled to capacity without advertising. Hazel and Clayton had realized they could have a thriving business by booking referred vacationers by the week. They did this for more than two decades. This is a view of the dining room. You can see it's pretty small, by especially by today's standards. This is uh, a sample letter that would come to the Sinclairs asking if there's room available and suggesting the time that they'd like to come and uh, Often, it would be accompanied by a $5 deposit to hold the room for a week. Clayton died in 1978. Hazel continued to live on alone in the house until 1995. Their son, Clay Jr., still owns the property but lives in Atlanta, Georgia with no intention of returning home to live in Maine. Uh, This is some of the guests at Rock Rest, at leisure, simple but uh, affordable and accessible, which was the key word in this period of time that we're talking about. This is uh, Hazel and Clayton in uh, later years. The Sinclairs were active in the community of Kittery. He worked at the Naval Shipyard and served on the town planning board. She catered private parties and was a member of the League of Women Voters. Both were active in the black community across the river in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. He was a deacon in Portsmouth's historic black church which can mention. She sang in the choir and was in the Missionary Society. They helped found the local NAACP. They were socially active and well-known in both communities and indeed among clusters of friends uh, in the Boston area and New York, New Jersey and Pennsylvania where many of their uh, house guests had come from. About five years ago, rock rest was on its way to being sold when the Portsmouth Black Heritage Trail intervened, convinced the son to delay placing the house on the open market. That would have meant certain destruction of the house because of its now long neglected uh, physical condition and because it's small, especially for today's buyers. The Black Heritage Trail convened a roundtable of Maine and New Hampshire preservationists to brainstorm the situation. The Rockrest Rest Roundtable easily agreed that the area doesn't need yet another house museum. We want to find a more collaborative, productive use of the property, some ways to engage the community or communities in a variety of ongoing activities that recall the past, the past history of rock rest while addressing current issues. We want to tell the story of racial segregation in New England where it is seldom mentioned or even known. But we also want to educate the public, especially children, about the productive ways that black people responded to oppression. That in the 1950s for instance, African-Americans didn't sit idly by waiting for MLK or JFK or LBJ <laughs> <laughs> to make things better. African-Americans have always created a way out of no way. The Rock, uh, the rock Rest Roundtable envisions Rock rest being restored and in some form returning to its original use to welcome vacationers and or academic scholars who wish to experience the ambiance of this special place. Can you imagine <laughs> working in a little kitchen, I mean this is the kitchen, there's no hidden, there's nothing that in the kitchen of significance that you don't see except on the left hand side is where the cabinets are, which are filled to this moment with the original dishware and pots and pans that Hazel Sinclair used to create her fabulous meals, which was one of the reasons people love to come there. They got breakfast and dinner with their uh, reservation. And uh, so it's a, a fairly well intact, Uh, Youngstown kitchen of the 50's uh, with just a regular refrigerator no granite tops no (laughs) sub-zero fridge none of that stuff but boy could she cook on that stove. Um, We envision creating a space for small groups to gather for lectures, exhibits and orientation probably in the garage uh, what we call the garage and Uh, Other interactive programs for school groups. Collaborations have begun with several agencies, including the University of New Hampshire, uh, where the amazing collection of stuff, documentation, bills, photographs, memorabilia of all sorts, both private and business-related, uh, of their guests and their own personal travels her uh... her diaries of travels and her opinion of what other guest houses across the country were like and whether the food was up to par i mean it's great stuff and um, and quite a few of his t- really terrible slides he was a we have agreed that he was the world's worst photographer but <laughs> <laughs> he tried and so we do have um, some of those slides that have been uh, printed and uh, let's see So the University of New Hampshire has created the rock rest collection in its special collections and um, We were the Black Heritage Trail was able to uh, engage uh, an intern from the Cooperstown graduate program who happens to be with us today, Rachel Jones-Williams, who is, uh, has used those archival materials and other resources to uh, create an exhibit that will be both the stationary and traveling exhibit to tell the rock rest story. Uh, the, the National Trust for Historic Preservation has provided emergency and interve- intervention grants to help us stabilize the house while uh, in negotiations with the owner about uh, transferring ownership. Meanwhile, Rock Rest has been placed on the National Register of Historic Places and recently was listed as one of Maine's endangered historic sites. The fate of Rock Rest has not yet been decided, but we're confident that it will not be uh, bulldozed, which has been our greatest fear. But even if it is, uh, uh, which it could under one of our nor- nor'easter uh, storms, we, we always have our fingers crossed that it's going to make it through. But uh, since we do have these resources uh, saved and protected, and oral histories too, both of Hazel and of some of her, her uh, guests, that the story will be preserved. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Valerie. We have to do a quick change out here uh, on the computers because we had incompatible computers. So uh, <laughs> just bear with me for one second. And we'll. While we're doing that, I'm going to introduce our next speaker while she's setting up. So our next speaker uh, is a little bit further along in the uh, process and, and thank you Valerie for that description. It's a really I've been following that in New England. It's a really uh, important project. Um, our next speaker is Lynn Spencer, uh, who is the Principal Historic Preservationist um, well, with Menders, Torrey, and Spencer, Inc. Let me tell you a little bit about Lynn's background. She has a long tenure in the field of historic preservation. She served as Director of Properties for the Society for the Preservation of New England Antiquities, now Historic New England. Uh, She was there for 12 years, uh, followed by eight years of independent consulting she currently is Principal of Historic Preservation at Menders, Tory, & Spencer, Inc., an architecture and preservation planning firm in Boston. Lynn's work includes the preservation and sensitive rehabilitation of numerous projects of national significance, including the Old North Church and H.H. H. Richardson's Stonehurst, the Robert Treat Payne Estate. Uh, Lynn is also working with several properties that are in development, whether as museums or something else. Mm-hmm. And uh, she's going to be talking to you today about the Wakefield estate, and we'll get this up and going in just, just a minute.
2: Well: I have some questions for you because I think it is time to stretch and you know think about participation here. You're just not just listening and watching the screen evolve. Um, I want to ask you how many of you are in the historic house museum business? Everyone here? Okay. How many of you are elevated by your mission? Every morning you wake up in the morning and you are charged. Fewer and fewer hands.
1: <laughs>
2: how many of you are lumbered by the stuff? And When I say the stuff, I mean collections, Buildings, stuff that needs looking after? Nobody? A few of you? All right. And then, how many of you wonder who, besides yourselves, your staff, and your board, really cares? More people. As Ken said, I've been doing this work for a number of years. And um, the, the subject of my talk today is a particular place. um, called the Wakefield Estate. It is located in Milton, Massachusetts. This property was occupied by a continuous family lineage for over 300 years. The last owner of the property died in 2004. Her name was Polly Wakefield, and she is an extraordinary personality. I will read this because of the podcast situation, but let me say what Polly, one of Polly's quotes, less visitors to my garden today are inclined to wonder why it is so crowded with plants that there is little ground left between them, I would like to remind them that nature preserves it, prefers it that way. That sort of attitude about nature also extended itself to Polly's residence. When Polly died in 2004, she had it in mind to create a legacy, um, a living legacy, if you will, which included her 22-acre estate, which was the last vestige of the over 400 acres uh, of it in its heyday. This estate had been established in 1707 with uh, the move of the Davenport family from Dorchester to what was then the hinterland of Milton, Milton is today in the outer ring of Boston's uh, sort of exurban growth. It is at the edge of 128. That gives you some sense of boundary. In its in in its the first two centuries of its life as a community, it was mainly a place of farms and estate, and and eventually country estates, as Bostonians sort of sought to create the kind of show places um, for their, as signs of their wealth, and as also to sort of sustain themselves agriculturally. There is today with this property uh, the main house, which is from 1794, that expression, if you will, of the... The, the gentleman country estate. You'll see that the 18th century farmhouse lost its eight as it went down below, <laughs> but there is the, the original house, which was set up in 1707, and a number of outbuildings. Um, the outline of the property uh, is is shown in a, in a sort of squirrely phase in that in that uh, aerial view. But we have, as I said, 22 acres of of ground, much of which was set up in the 20th century by Polly as an experimental garden. Um, Polly herself had, in the 1920s, attended the Lothrop School of Landscape Architecture for Women. I think that's a topic right there. And this was an affiliate of MIT at that point. MIT really wasn't accepting women, and they sort of established this little offshoot in Groton, Massachusetts. And of course, gardening was a woman's task, wasn't it? Managing the estate, being in charge of the household. Uh, What Polly chose to do was to, in fact, carry out her experiments, her learning, at her family estate. She had that luxury and that ability. Uh, During the war, for instance, she herself oversaw the haying, she raised sheep, she had horses and a cow. You you know, it was a small microcosm, if you will, of, of, of the earlier country estate. In terms of context, there's two things that I want to point out, and if you'll bear with me. Point out: Here's the, the Wakefield Estate. Across the street is Fuller Village. This is a community that was built, constructed in the last few years for assisted living. That's an important thing I want you to keep in mind. At this edge of the property is the Thatcher Montessori School. Two built-in audiences. Now, shall I? Get this Now, my involvement with this property began in the autumn of 2005. Um, and at that point when I met with the four trustees and I think this is significant, <laughs> they conveyed this mission to me. Um and there's an illustration of Polly, but in her will they told me Polly created the Mary MB Wakefield Charitable Trust to hold the Milton property in perpetuity she directed that the houses be converted to a museum and the grounds be be maintained as an arboretum park all for the public benefit and education the trustees have started the process of fulfilling her wishes now who were the trustees trusted advisors her attorney her accountant her stockbroker and the niece sound like Agatha Christie <laughs> do we have a you know what kind of story do we have here they each of them had intimate knowledge of polly her opinions her attitudes but they had no experience with what it meant to develop a historic site in the way this was envisioned although they had reservations about what that meant those reservations were borne out as they began to seek professional guidance they contacted several different organizations they knew for instance that Polly had for many years been courted and gone really almost to the altar with the trustees of reservation which had a property down the the street the trustees compete with, uh, with historic New England in terms of uh, preserving um, historic properties in Massachusetts. I shouldn't say compete. They complement historic New England. Their main mission is is, uh, is land preservation. Sometimes along the way they take over buildings. They had the Bradford estate down the street. It seemed to make sense to do something jointly, but Polly conceived of going this on her own she became concerned that somebody else would take the collections out of the house for instance and use them to refurnish another historic building and that's donor anxiety is oftentimes a governing force here so she decided to go it along alone and frankly Polly had the resources to make that happen it took me many months to to squirrel out how much money was involved with this property but there was a substantial endowment and that gave everyone a little bit of breathing room not forever but sufficiently so the trustees sought professional guidance one of the people they talked to was Carl Nold of historic New England Carl very kindly suggested that they talk with me and that began my involvement in the autumn of 2005. After doing an initial building assessment, really all they wanted to know is are, are there our are buildings going to fall down? Um, I then talked with them about master planning and about the usual kind of process that we go through to set up or to explore how a place should be developed and managed. They were not so much interested in that they were interested in a different model and that's really the subject of my talk today. Joining me as the triad, if you will, um, on this was I suggested they talk to Liz Visa. I had worked with Liz who primarily comes from a landscape background, but I had worked with her on master plans for the Wayside Inn Complex as well as Forest Hill Cemetery. I knew that she had exemplary skills in bringing people together for creative thinking. The other key player who continues to be involved here is Claire Dempsey, who heads Boston University's Historic Preservation Program. She has given, uh, given intellectual substance and guidance to this project that is, is critical. The trustees really were interested in using the whole planning process and investigation process as a learning laboratory. They felt that every task, everything we do should be a learning opportunity. They said to me, When you walk the property, Lynn, you should have somebody at your side. Well literally this is you know, can be elevating in some ways, but it can can drag you down in another way. And the finding that balance was, was critical to us. We also and we by this I say Liz Claire and Lynn worked very hard to educate the, the four trustees in what best practice should be. Now, I won't go through all of this with you today, but there are highlights that you know very well about curatorial investigation, management, research, documentation, Secretary of the Interior standards, how archaeology can serve and that kind of thing. We felt we, we spent considerable time sharing our knowledge and understanding of this and developing a common understanding and language. Ultimately, though, we said do go at a slow pace, do no harm. There was no nobody was in a big hurry, and that was important. So we took four phase my talk is divided into four phases. The initial discovery phase the investigation that we t- we carried out, the engagement with the local community and with potential partners, and how we are sustaining this endeavor today what 's the story? You always have to start with what what 's the story in this case, it seemed initially quite overwhelming i 've described a, a number of buildings and lots of collections, layers over time, but you know quite honestly. While Polly valued and cherished her place, little was really known in terms of what what was its history and background. What were the associational qualities? We started through work with interns uh, initially with the Boston University program under Claire's very personal and professional direction in doing documentary and architectural research. We also were aware, because I would go through the house with Claire, and every time we opened a drawer or looked you know, in a closet, there were piles of paper. We found an original plot plan from 1794. We found an 1864 map. We would find little caches of things here and there. So we knew that an important part of this discovery process was, in fact, what what are the materials that help inform, help us understand significance? We also were aware, and this is, I think, some of the things that people sometimes have a block against, that archaeology is, is a tool for under, understanding and protection. And so we wanted to bring that into to this, to the story. And you'll see students, for instance, um, in the middle illustration and doing uh, some test pits because we, in fact, had to do some sewer line work. Um, and the fourth part of, of what the, the these sort of study projects had to do with is the landscape itself. Um, it is, in fact, it was the most overwhelming and daunting part of this because it's organic. It keeps growing. We engaged in the first summer with an intern, Erica Max, from, who was a, a graduate of Radcliffe's Landscape Seminars, and she began to untangle that, that genius of place, what is the core of the place, as well as dealing with the shrubberies themselves. She had a hands-on job. We also did the building and systems assessment, and critically, we instituted... With the help of trusted friends and advisors, and in this case, I really want to acknowledge two people, Jane Nylander, uh, who was the former director of Historic New England, and Robert Muzzy, a furniture conservator. You'll see from these illustrations that there's a lot of stuff. This is a house that had you know, an important collection of Thomas Seymour furniture f- of the... Uh, late 18th, early 19th century, and on top of it, the detritus of the last 20 years of the owner's occupancy—you know—stuff just got laid on top of things. One of the trustees, in a fit of enthusiasm, felt that you know, in order to do repairs on the house, the collection needed to be packed up and put away in boxes. Um, and I have to congratulate—he he did have the wisdom to find past perfect and start using past perfect software to do this, but one of the things that we did was put a freeze, if you will, on further packing and management of collections, because we felt it was important that they be assessed in situ by people who were qualified to assess them. We also began to to get phone calls from the community, and in one particular person, who was a former town manager, uh, uh, an Arden gardener himself, and... Uh, Retired had a lot of time to call and say what 's going on when you' you going to open it up? Well, you know what what 's going on? So we had the community nudge. What we wanted to do was to hold off though on engagement with the community until we went through some more of this discovery. but we did know that we wanted to have a round, round table. Um, Beverly described a round table that helped the, her group with planning. We organized a similar thing in um, 2007, which involved 12 participants from the world of museums, landscape, education, um, both secondary and higher level, uh, higher education, uh, museum interpretation, the local community. So we had 12 advisors, and in order to come to that group, we spent a lot of time searching and culling because these were the wise heads that we wanted to help guide us. We also had some 12 staff or trustees involved. So there were 24 people in total working on this. We had a day-long session. Prior to that session, we sent out a briefing book that actually encapsulated what we had learned so far in the initial research and discovery process. Um, We also had an intern do some investigate, do a paper, a research paper on applied learning because we were understanding that experiential learning was probably our big topic, in fact is our big topic. And so she did a paper on various, you know, it was a pedagogical, I can't say it, a pedagogical study of applied learning and those kinds of opportunities. She also did a comparative analysis of other history or, or natural sites that were doing work in the area, going as far north as Portsmouth and down to Cape Cod. So we were looking, if you will, at comparables you could say competition we had four goals in this session idea generation their perspectives on the research on the resource itself you know what's the significance what are the opportunities we wanted to hear their perceptions of the infrastructure needs what you need to do to develop the site and we basically wanted to establish our network. These were potential partners and could lead us to more. I'm reminded of Tip O'Neill, our former congressman. All politics are local. And what we have to say, and we knew from the onset, is not another house museum. This, there was nothing particularly unique or important about this one compared to historic New England's holdings and many other private holdings in the area. But we did feel that serving the local community was in, instead of looking for audience from far away, but serving the local community was most likely our primary um, primary audience and 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 important to the mission that's a lot of words on a page so I'll let you look at it but there are big ideas and I and there's a you know many other discussions that that came out of this so I I now realize I can't just have you read this I need to to observe our (sighs) podcast rules Um, after a very interesting and engaging session and I want to say that Ken Torino was one of our participants and one of the leaders in in the thinking process. We came up with these big ideas. One is, they said keep the momentum that you've got going, don't lose it. Uh, Connect to the community, you know, and be prepared to host diverse activities. Create long-term partnerships, local, regional, national. None of this is, is that unusual. It's kind of typical. Experiment and innovate. Be inspired by Polly's example. And I think this is worth pausing on for a, sec- for a second, because I think one of the things we really wrestled with were, are, what's the significance of this site? What are the values it represents? What are the kinds of – what kind of energy, if you will, um, can, can we draw from it and learn from it? And one of the things that Polly really was interesting about – was this idea of experimentation. She viewed her landscape not as a showplace, but as a way of experimenting with different plant materials, different plant practices, some design ideas. Um, for instance, and I think she was in the vanguard. She was in in terms of the, what we think of ecology today in the garden. She understood that pest control, damage to species, the damage to species, Tree species were environmental caused by environmental factors. She began to develop dogwood strains, for instance, that would not be sustained, you know, not be attacked by certain pests. So there is there, I think, a really germ of an important idea: experiment, free will. And in fact, don't be too concerned by what the neighbors think. That was Polly. Uh, change people's thinking. <laughs> From notions of high design to loving the commonplace. Again, going to the source of information on the site itself and learning and using from it. Develop programs with high level issues and big names. We think that the environmental issues, the environmental stories are our topics, and we are all very aware of the effects of urban environments, global warming. This is a this is an important place for us to think about doing interesting things. Focus on education, but not as a historic house museum. Uh, that was just across the board. Create mentoring opportunities um, or create mentoring relationships and t- teaching opportunities on the site. This is a particularly important idea because this idea has to do with with working with young people and old people. I mentioned the Thatcher Montessori School, Fuller Village, but there's a lot in between. And we felt that there is a social purpose that could be achieved here as well as environmental purpose. Have clear purpose and goals, yet maintain flexibilities. I have to tell you that when I went to a trustees meeting after this workshop with this Brief that we had prepared as a result of the workshop, one of the trustees said, "But there's nothing new here. There's nothing, you know." I I I said, "Well, what did you expect? Were we going to create a rocket? This isn't rocket science. This is actually, you know, about doing good work with what we have." Um, So, what did we do to 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 experiment with that? Um, We continued our work with uh, housekeeping, if you will, in 2007 and 2008. One of the things that I think is important to share with you is that the trustees were very interested in having me set up colla- you know, internships with local institutions. And I mentioned earlier the example of the archives. We've got it with the uh, material culture as well. Uh, Simmons College has a wonderful archival and library science program but nobody was interested in just having their students work on this without having guidance and direction professional guidance and direction from the site itself so don't assume that you have a project without having the responsibility to set it up and guide it so we in fact had to hire a professional archivist to help set up the system and then we had wonderful uh, interns from Simmons College work to begin to catalog inventory and catalog that collection, uh, the, the archival collection. BU continued to do ongoing research, wonderful research, including the preparation of the, all the basic uh, information for a National Register nomination. John Cronin, our local nudge, came back into the picture and helped us arrange a series of open houses. This was very good because this was the first time, this was in the um, spring of 2007, where we had opened the estate, if you will, to the public. And we shared with the various groups. We, We sort of tracked the groups by history or culture or gardening. But we shared with them some of the the challenges we were facing. We wanted to hear from them what was important. So we had the visioning workshop with the, the wise heads and then we had the community workshops with you know, people who are willing to be engaged and were curious about the place. It began to help us develop partnerships and one in particular has been particularly rich. Um, and that was one that came from the involvement of Barbara Plonsky, who was the head of curriculum for the Milton Public Schools, a science teacher in her own right, one of the people in the visioning workshop, and someone who in fact spends time at the site as a volunteer. She led us to a series of partnerships. Uh University of Massachusetts, I won't even begin to try to pronounce Chica de buck hill summer camp, but the Mass Audubon Society had a, a site just down the street. So we began to do these these sort of cooperative programs. Lots of this was, edu- was aimed at young people and children. Because one of the things that Barbara was very eloquent about was in fact, um, I see the slaves have got you, <laughs> um, was the what she called the nature deficit. Kids sit in front of a monitor. They sit in a classroom. There's not enough money for field trips. But if we could address, you know, what it means to be outside, to do things, to do things cooperatively, we would be doing a public benefit. We started... Uh, with Eric and Max in 2007, and we've had our second group of slaves. We asked them to name the group themselves, and this is what they came up with Summer Labor and Vegetation Eradication Squad. Well, part of what that was about is that we were dealing with the invasives on the property, the bittersweet, and the Norway maples, and all you know, the buckthorn. We also set up a tree nursery program which was something, again, that Polly had done herself but we set up a tree nursery program with the local Department of Public Works. Most importantly, we we began to hire staff. I actually, and this is going out on a limb as a project manager because I was a consultant on this. I If I spent a day a week on this I'd be lucky because remember I'm the principal of an architectural firm but I I, I did have a passion for this so I would find the time I hired the landscape supervisor and education coordinator I hired a, gr- a groundskeeper who had been a zookeeper at the R- Roger Williams Zoo and was used to talking with people because I wanted to make sure that whoever was working on this site was going to be engaged in education we had a development consultant but we had reservations about how much fundraising we could do for several reasons i'll talk about them in a second we started having kids from the the montessori school come over to do work we had we had volunteers from fuller village we started to sort of do stuff in the autumn of two thousand seven and i think for, for sites in the public realm this is very important we for the first time made application to the to the town of milton for tax exemption previously they had been paying twenty six thousand maybe thirty thousand dollars a year in real estate taxes so this is going to be a significant loss of revenues to the town now under massachusetts law you in fact a five oh one c three is entitled to tax exemption But many communities will get you in a big seesaw to get you there. And so we had to present a case. Well, by then, (laughs) we had two years of doing community service. So that was part of the discussion. But it was with the understanding by the community that this house had been left by a woman of means, and there was probably means to support it. That's why the development story here is a little bit different because we were able to fund internships, we were able to fund programs um, in the community, but that can only go for so long. We're going to have to start raising money. Uh, Sustainability, moving on with the appointment in November 2007 of Mark Smith as executive director the staff is now in place and mark has done a wonderful job and and reaching out to the community reinforcing those partnerships really creating marketing and and communication opportunities you can just see from the list of things that have been done over the last year a whole bunch of things including everything from the popular you know soup friday soup lunches to uh... the chicken project although no one is quite sure what to do with the male chickens that that's a that's you know we the the eggs are fine but the 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 male chickens that's another issue i think we're giving them away um, kids doing stuff milton is a community that is divided in terms of minority. it's it, The area that this estate is in is in the midst of other estates. But half of Milton is, is minority population. So we felt that there is a real opportunity to do some outreach to, frankly, populations that don't get outside very much. Um, and share what we what they learn and what we know I, I one of the things that i find interesting is that in the two years of the slave group that group which our kids ranging in age from fourteen to uh, nineteen have never had a fight always show up do their work contribute what's going on next this whole series of things uh... continuing along the lines of developing the, the the landscape and the education program and the sort of community relationships. the big challenge and and I should say and also dealing with housekeeping, we just have completed a major uh, infrastructure development project, um, again, part of the initial cast on master planning, as well as an exterior preservation project on the house. The biggest problem facing this estate, is in fact what to do with the stuff collections unlike some of the other case studies that you may be hearing about um, this is not a property where we're looking at selling with easements or anything like that but we are trying to think about imaginative ways of of using the resources and right now we have a a house that is chocolate block filled with family furnishings, finding people to help figure out what to do with this is in fact the next big challenge for us. The other thing is continue to sort of evolve that mission. I read a mission at the very beginning, which was the trustee's initial take on this. Mark Smith is working with a group of people which include Ken and myself and Claire. To continue to sort of refine and develop that mission. So, to conclude, going back to the beginning, let's go back to the source of this place, Polly's legacy for ex- innovation, experimentation, and engagement. Polly was instrumental, for instance, in reviving the public garden in Boston and in setting up legislation for for landscape and environmental protection. But in the end, what she learned, which enabled her to go into the world, she learned by experimenting on her place. And so she says this to conclude. Managing a garden closely resembles our lives today. If you can discover what those around you prefer and need, and what satisfies them, all will be well. What that says is talk to the people in your community. Talk to, the, talk to the wise heads. Use what you learn, and don't be afraid to make mistakes, to experiment, to reach out. Thank you very much.
0: <laughs> on there. Oh God thank you did you, uh, okay. And okay Thank You Lynn and just bear with me for another minute and we want sign you You can see uh, from the presentations you've heard uh, this morning that uh, all the sites we've been talking about are still uh, a work in progress, and uh, there are still challenges that we're all facing. Uh, I'm going to talk, actually fairly briefly, about uh, a project which I hope is uh, coming to a close, and that is um, about the Fog rollins House. Um, I got involved in this process in 2000. It's now uh, well into 2008 when uh, Bill Tramposh, who was then with Historic New England, invited me and two University of New Hampshire uh, professors um, to come and speak with the curator of the American Independence Museum and the director of the local historical society in Exeter, New, Hamp- New Hampshire. Uh, let me just tell you, Exeter is about 15 miles or so from Portsmouth, New Hampshire right off the highway. Um, some of you may have heard of Exeter because of Phillips' Exeter Academy, one of the leading prep schools uh, in the New England, if not the country. So my involvement began then as part of Historic New England's community engagement. We have a historic house in that property, the Gilman Garrison House, which I will mention <laughs> shortly. So what I want to do is talk to you about the process that we have gone through with the Fogg-Rollins House. And uh, I've uh, actually, I think it was about five years ago, presented this at ASLH when we were uh, in the early stages of uh, talking about what to do with this house. And I think you'll see some similarities with what uh, Lynn has been talking about, uh, but there are some distinct differences too. One of the similarities is that when the last owner of this house, which is on one of the main roads going into downtown Exeter, uh, just outside of the historic district, uh, when she died in 1995, and her name was Ms. Rollins, she uh, established a trust to preserve this house. And again, I will read this. Uh, Here's her last will and testament. the real property be restored substantially to its condition as it existed in the early 18th century and the trustees make the property available for viewing and study by all persons as a historic homestead museum. First off um, this was not the only property involved. Uh, Ms. Rollins lived in Salisbury, Massachusetts not terribly far away, down the highway, Um, and she when establishing this trust uh, left that house to, and people have heard, some people have heard this story, to her 12 cats who have life tenancy, and she left all the money to that house and the cats. Um, she established the, her trustees, and this again sounds very similar to Lynn. Her original group of trustees included her doctor, her veterinarian, her lawyer, her, and her chiropractor. Um, these people uh, admitted that they did not really have uh, the first idea about creating a historic homestead museum, Uh, but what they did have the foresight to do was to hire a historian to do a baseline documentary research report on the house and uh, in that we found that the house uh, itself was dating from the 1790s. If we were to follow her will and restore it to its early 18th century appearance, we would tear it down and plant trees. Um, the documentary report um, said right from the very beginning, and that was done in 2000, that this was not a candidate for historic house. Okay? It said that from the beginning, but what you've heard from Lynn and you've uh, heard from Valerie, this is a long process that you have to go through uh, with people to get them to the point. Even though that, that was said from the beginning, uh, the original group of trustees and then the next group of trustees, uh, it took them a, hard, a long time to accept that fact. Now, I came, uh, as I said, onto the project in 2000, and when we brought this group together, our purpose was to explore possibilities for the use of this property could it be a museum or what were other alternatives for its use and I'll talk a little bit about that and I'm just gonna go through some of the images to give you a sense of the house and not talk about each slide individually but talk a little bit more about the process that we went through um, and what we did Uh, so the house also sits on nine and a half acres I should tell you that there um, was a residence apartment in the back of the building. This—that's uh, what you're seeing here. It contains substantial outbuildings on the nine and a half acres, uh, including a dairy barn that is falling in on itself, and a barn uh, that people have said the only reason that it is still standing is because it is filled three stories with stuff. Uh, and I'll show you some slides of that. Now. Um, the property, and this I should tell you as I walk you through the house, also contains what a very important building, what may be the only surviving uh, carriage-making shop in um, all of New Hampshire. That was a major, major industry in New Hampshire. This building stands on the corner of two major intersections, and I'm always very frightened that something's going to be going into it. Uh, but this is important. The uh, property, as I said, nine and a half acres, also includes the family graveyard. And uh, you can see that here. The house has not been occupied, if you look at the date on the calendar, since 1955. This house, I should also tell you, has never had running water, has never had electricity, and the only heating sources have been the fireplaces originally and then coal burning stoves. Uh, The house was, as I said, built in the 1790s and then it was, uh, some of it was updated in the 1830s and then basically nothing has been done. The property uh, and this is again similar to the Wakefield estate is chock-a-block with material. The trustees cleared out the Salisbury house. Uh, The cats actually live in little apartments there. They have a caretaker. Uh, They have rental property that brings them in income and um, the family possessions that were in that house were dumped into this house and you can sort of make sense of some of the original material that was from this house and material that was brought in family material and uh... what we did was we got all of the uh, paper material out and uh... historic new england right now is housing that and uh, we connected up so I think you're getting an idea of what what our challenges are here uh, with this property, and um, what we did then is we worked with UNH, University of New Hampshire, to use this as a study house for two for a course on regional material culture, and what I did as part of the board is I arranged for to hire a professor and use this um, as A case study as an example for the students. And one of the ideas, one of the things that we were exploring, could there be a partnership with the University of New Hampshire uh, where they actually take this property on and use it with their students. Um, And there were a number of people in the field actually when I first presented this at Historic New England who really liked that idea and wanted us to pursue that. And and we did. And we ran very successfully uh, two courses Um, on regional material culture. And from that we got interns into the property who succeeded in cataloging in one summer um, two rooms. This house again is just filled with material. Every draw, every inch is covered with stuff. Um, One of the problems again, this house does not have any electricity. Uh, We can only Work on it seasonally, so the students were there in the summer, which could get pretty sweltering. I have to tell you, and we discovered after two summers and had inventoried only two rooms, uh, that this could go on for uh, years um, in the meanwhile, we continued to discuss with uh, the University of New Hampshire possibilities of continuing the relationship, and quite frankly, uh, that did not pan out. They did not have the financial resources uh, the Fog Rollins' house does not have the financial resources. I should say, when the cats pass away, that their money and their property can be sold and come to this house. But as you know, cats can go on for quite a while. Um, I, I will also say, and I joke about this with everyone. Um, they were neutered, so they were. You know, there wasn't any possibility there. So um, just continuing, showing you some um, some other. Sl- Uh, slides of what we had to deal with. And the other thing is we are down to two cats. Um, After many many years, um, some of the other things that we've done is uh, we've actually, we did a survey with the community and worked with the local historical society and as I mentioned the curator of the American Independence Museum which is a substantial museum on the main street downtown um, and and, looking, and talking with them and their constituencies about how this house could be used. Um, on our board, which evolved to include the director of the local historical society, um, the curator I mentioned before, myself, um, the chiropractor stayed. He knew Ms. Rollins very well and was very interested, actually a young man, and like with uh, Polly Wakefield, could talk about Ms. Rollins' wishes. Uh, which is something that we did want to honor in this process. So, um, we talked with people in the community. We also did a survey in the community about what we could do with this property. Um, From that we learned that people didn't think it would be a house museum. Um, And we also talked to the local school. I mentioned Phillips Exeter. And quite frankly, they weren't interested in a partnership with us. This just did not fit in what, with what they were doing. We also then looked at, what are the other museums in the community? So we did a study in that 10 mile, we drew a circle around Exeter and looked at the museums within a 10 mile radius. 13 historic museums, uh, including one historic New England, and these were mostly volunteer-run organizations. Some didn't have permanent housing. A number of historic houses. Um, all I can tell you were struggling. Uh, these are images just of the attic. If you haven't figured that out. Um, and what the decision was to do after looking at all of this material, uh, talking to some of the other museums, including the American Independence Museum, which is is thriving in the city. I should tell you our house, our Gilman Garrison house um, on the main street in Exeter just down the street from the uh, property, uh, the American Independence Museum, we had to close from being regularly opened because we were not getting uh, the visitation. So that gives you an idea. Uh, That property has uh, architectural significance if not a compelling story. And one of the reasons, and just to step back, that this was considered not a good candidate for a historic house was because it did not have a compelling story. So we did the research um, to find out, to help inform our decision. And that's why we moved forward and petitioned the state of New Hampshire uh, to amend the will and um, to turn the property into a private residence. And the idea was that this would go into a stewardship program, um, and Lynn mentioned the the possibility of those. There are a number of them. New Hampshire has a stewardship program that would put easements on the house uh, that would stay with it in perpetuity. So we had to go to the Attorney General and request that. I'm going to come back and talk about that just briefly. Here um, and Historic New England has a stewardship program that is very successful. We have 75 programs throughout New England, and I'm showing you just examples of a couple other people, a uh, couple other sites, which I chose sites that were actually deaccessioned from museums, knowing we'd have a, muse, a museum audience. Uh, this was deaccessioned by the Kennebunk, uh, the Old Brick Store Museum in Kennebunk, Maine. Uh, they had their headquarters in a historic house and they determined that they could not maintain the historic house and sold it into private hands with easements. Uh, This was the Needham Historical Society that did the same. I mentioned early in my talk, Rochester Historical Society has done that. And lastly, this house is actually on the market now. Um, It's the Holly Williams House in Lakeville, Connecticut. And uh, the... Uh, historical Society that owned this is now selling it with historic New England uh, with historic New England easements and protection. Our crew came into the property and identified what elements uh, needed to be preserved and I just show you including you know wallpaper borders, wallpaper in the closet, uh, down to uh, doorknobs that will be written into the lease. So. This process has been going on really since 1995. I want to emphasize that the process that we're going through has been very slow paced. It has been very, very emotional for people, uh, trustees, who have known Ms. Rollins and the director of the local historical society, which we offered this property to. We said that we would give you this property as a museum if you like. We will give you the contents. And we will give you all of the money when the cats go, um, if you want to take this property. Uh, we we looked at um, combining our resources, and that's something that Lynn also mentioned. And if you read the report on Kikit, you'll uh, hear more about that. The Historical Society declined, even though the president of the board could not see any other option for this to be than a historic house museum. And after the board voted to amend the will, he actually went public and uh, went to the local newspapers and tried to drum up support, even then, to save it as a museum. And guess what? No one cared. There was no response. And that finally, after all this period, convinced him and brought him on board. And it was really very, very emotional and very, very difficult for him. So, um, now, the latest is that um, the Attorney General is appointing, um, has been down to the House, has met with us, this was this summer, early this summer, and she agrees that this is not a good candidate for historic uh, museum, Um, but uh, to tell you things to be aware of, which I've learned, um, she is appointing a uh, special trustee who will examine all that we've done in the past so that there appeared no conflict of of interest because i work for historic new england and i'm a trustee in the recommendation that this go into our stewardship program and the other thing which is very important to tell you about lynn has uh, ended with talking about the collections well we do have a solution for all the collections in the house for Historic New England, and that's a model that we've used in the past at Historic New England with other stewardship properties. Uh, We are inviting in curators from the uh, New Hampshire Historical Society, from the local Exeter Historical Society, and from Historic New England, possibly Strawberry Bank, and one other historic site, uh, to come in and basically make lists of the material that they want for their collections. We feel that that would honor Ms. Rollins' wishes, that this material be preserved. All of the documents and the photographs will all go to the local historical society. We had UNH come in and document the whole house in black and white photographs. Uh, we have the negatives and the prints from those. Those will all help document preserve the house. Any money that's left over from the sale of the house in Salisbury and from the subsequent sale of this will go into a trust fund. Um, Historic New England's easements, I should tell you, have to come with a trust fund. Uh, But any other money, which is actually fairly modest, we have a full-time staff that monitors our easements but uh... any other money will go into a scholarship fund for local students in exeter who want to pursue the study of history we feel uh, felt that ms rollins that would be in keeping with her will so we're trying to do our best to honor this as much as possible so um, the plan for the ag uh, the attorney general has said it's fine to go ahead with the, uh... making the plans to distribute the um, the objects and we 're going to start that now that the summer heat is gone and before it gets too cold, because they have to go in with no electricity, as I said um, and that will that will happen actually next month and in the meanwhile, we have found a home for the remaining cats, and the AG agrees with this, and the two cats will go to live out the rest of their lives in bliss with a twenty thousand dollar endowment and um, uh, we will have solved that issue and then can begin the sale of the uh... property uh... one thing that makes this a little bit difficult for us is that we have to go through probate court in two states <laughs> massachusetts and new hampshire uh... but i can tell you that the end is in sight uh, and uh... i hope to uh... put this together in an article and continue to talk about the process i think lynn summed it up really well and I hope that you could see, and what all of these three presentations have uh, dealt with, that there was a discovery uh, phase, there was an investigation phase, engagement with the community, and we're looking at the sustainability for these properties, but not as museums. Thank you. <laughs> that's it. So we have a few minutes for questions, anyway, um, and I need to get the mic.
1: I just have a very practical question. Is there a market for a house like that that needs so much renovation?
0: Uh, that, that's a good question. We're going to price it accordingly, because clearly, as you could see, they need to do virtually everything. Uh, but in talking with our stewardship uh, team, I've said, is this property in the worst condition that you ever se- have ever seen? And they said no. Um, the house itself is, I mean, the envelope is is solid, it just needs, everything else.
1: What about the carriage-making facility that you mentioned?
0: Yeah, uh, that, the easements will be put on that. There's actually some of the carriage-making equipment inside and that will go to a museum. We've, one, of the, one of the sites we've contacted is a local farm museum, so we're very, very concerned about that.
1: Uh, This is a question for Lynn, Um, I wanted to know how important you think it was for the group to become leaders in the community, not just leaders of the historic house you were trying to save. I'm thinking about the concept of No Child Left Inside and the recent uh, literature on that as well as um, meeting with people who could make a difference and could have a broader view.
2: I mentioned the social um, interest of, of the estate, and I think that is very important. You saw, you might have seen in that long list, the, there's an after-school program, for instance. Um, the slaves are, are about <laughs> giving jobs to young people and giving them a sense of purpose and meaning. Um, and I think, I think there is a strong social a- agenda I mean, from my point of view, yes, I have a social agenda. The trustees share that. That's partly why that idea of everything being a learning exercise evolved. So, yes, I think that that's true. Um, I think, to me, one of the, the key contacts was Barbara Plonsky, and that's why I mentioned her spe- specifically, because she's also been sustained and energetic as an involved person. So.
1: If, if you wouldn't mind commenting just a little bit more, um, how should other institutions approach this in terms of sustainability and relevance for the future?
2: Well, I I think that really it goes to talk with the local, find the local leaders, talk with them, and stay with them. Um, people will go in and out, and there have to be core values that, that you know, you have to identify and hold on to because staff change, leadership, local leaders change, but I I think it's really just going to and talking to people quite honestly and being open to new ideas. I have to say that in the beginning I didn't assume that we'd be running an after-school program and in fact we're looking at buying. Part of the problem we face are are, are logistics. People can't afford to get their kids there We're looking at buying a van, and fortunately, for a period of time, this place has the resources to do that. Um, At a certain point, the endowment will not be adequate, and they will have to start fundraising. The ability, though, to present, you know, what you've done will be exceptional.
1: I guess I'm interested in the documentation that you mentioned, Ken, about your reporting. Are you thinking of uh, describing the process of your deaccessioning or disposal of the collection uh, for the field, too? Because I think that's something that a lot of us need to deal with, and it sounds like at the other house, too, the collection piece is a real issue.
0: Yeah, that actually is something that we're, we're working on. Um, actually, this, this whole process in terms of evaluating historic houses and the collections piece is obviously a very, very big part of it. And, um, yeah. yeah. Did you want
2: well, I, I was going to say, you know, Ken set up the regional s- study in material culture, and you heard that two summers were spent in cataloging two rooms. Think about the Wakefield estate and three floors and an and inventory that was done at the estate, closing of over 1,600 items, and that doesn't include what's in the barn. Um, So I, I think that collections care and management is a huge issue for us and for many other house museums, particularly those that are considering deaccessioning the real property. I worked at SPNEA at the Historic New England at the time that the stewardship program was born. Part of it was a need to deal with our real property, houses that were were frankly not of museum status (laughs) and could be preserved in other ways. But what to do with the stuff is huge.
1: where the house is still privately owned. Um, uh, The Sinclairs were uh, family friends, our family and theirs. In fact, I worked at Rock Rest two summers when I was uh, uh, still in high school, uh, helping Mrs. Sinclair. And so when the son moved away, and his mother became elderly and eventually died, I had always had a key to the house either to check on her or to check on the house. And I still have the only key to the house. But um, so when his mom died, he just sort of didn't know, he was overwhelmed with everything. And he said, take what you want because he knew that I always collected when people died the the stuff that nobody else wanted the pictures, the documentation and let somebody else fight over the silverware I wanted the paper stuff and so he said take what you want and I did uh, when he rented the house uh, and that person uh, moved, uh, he told me to go in and clear out all the stuff that she had left there abandoned her stuff and so uh, I had this oral agreement with him that I could do whatever I wanted to with, and he never specified what stuff. I could have taken everything out of the house, and it would have been fine with him because he just wanted to get rid of it. Just before we um, convinced him not to sell the house, he had uh, told uh, an antiques dealer to come and clear out the house. Now, some of the furnishings in there are valuable, some are not so valuable. So we still have all of that. And, you know, we told the antiques guy to go away. <laughs> but now we have all of that in the house with it, nothing legal about who owns it. So I actually just recently sent him, at, uh, you know, a form to sign saying that the stuff belongs to the Black Heritage Trail. But
0: the papers are all. The, the
1: paper documentation yep. is all, Catalog, it's yeah. gone. It's was working safe. On
2: yeah. Thank
1: you. Uh, what consideration was given to keeping the carriage-making apparatus as a unit
0: with the building, either on-site or uh, relocated as an entity as a unit to Strawberry Bank or some other place where it could be interpreted? Uh, <laughs> well, um, We actually, uh, my preservation friends uh, were going to shoot me if I did anything like that. Um, But um, actually, we did consider that, um, and uh, that uh, turned out, we did consider that. um, And I was, I talked to the Farm Museum, and I did talk to Strawberry Bank about that, and it wasn't something that was going to work. And our stewardship program would not have taken the house if we did that. Uh, So it will be preserved with easements. I I should say, you know, some of our property, uh, the easements have been, it's been written into that they're actually open to the public. The Lady Pepperell House in Kittery Point, uh, it's part of their easement. It's actually open uh, several times a year. I use it for a study course that I run. So, the downstairs of that building, the Carriage House, was totally renovated and there's nothing there. It's the upstairs floor uh which is very tenuous to get up to uh that the equipment survives. So um, I but I have talked about to museums about taking some of that equipment. So it, it's you know not not a total win.
1: How is your rock uh rest group organized? Are you a five oh one C three, are you a friends organization, or is it just a, a group of volunteers working together? Uh the Portsmouth Black Heritage Trail Inc is uh, 501C3, and so we are, uh, the, the grants and, and so forth come through the Black Heritage Trail. Now, of course, this uh, property is not in Portsmouth, but um, we should really change our name to Greater Portsmouth, but in uh, people who live in Portsmouth understand sort of that it's this is called the Seacoast area, and because we're all a bunch of little... Tiny towns. Um, we work collectively, and so it also includes Kittery, fortunately. So we can, we can do this and kind of get away with it.
0: And I'll just th- th- mention uh, Rachel one,
1: has a. Uh, oh, one. Okay,
0: uh, mention one thing that's related to this, and mm-hmm. that uh, we've been looking at a lot of our properties for alternative uses, and one of our properties, uh, Governor Langdon. Uh, mansion in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, Which is, where, our is offices. where her offices are. So yeah. we actually rent out space in that house to several nonprofits, so it's another use for historic houses. I just thought I'd yeah. throw that in.
1: Yeah. 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 Um, my question is for Lynn. Um, you were mentioning that part of the Milton community is uh, very diverse mm-hmm. with various incomes. Um, Your acronym for the children, the slaves, that's very offensive, does that alienate or has that kept children from volunteering or a certain section of the group or has the community mentioned or have you heard anything about how other people feel about it? You know,
2: Rachel, that I think is a very good point. I said in the beginning that the kids themselves came up with this and I think they thought it was kicky and fun. But, you know, Mark Smith and I, the new executive director, have talked about this because it, it it doesn't seem to ring well. And I certainly will carry back your comment, because you're certainly reinforcing the obvious. Fun for the kids when they were doing it, but sends the wrong message. I think it also
1: alienates a certain group of children who might consider doing something like that, that maybe that's not something they want to yeah. engage
2: in, or that's not something for them. Yeah. yeah.
1: And I think this, it, it could also be a, you know, that education that whatever they call it, educational moment, for the kids, because uh, to tell them that it isn't cute, yeah. it's not clever. Uh, well, maybe it's clever, but it sure ain't cute. Um, and, you know, to make the distinction between uh, volunteering to do some work, which they probably think is pretty, mostly fun, and slavery, which was not fun, and it wasn't
2: temporary either. (laughs) No, it wasn't temporary. In fact, I I should mention this is a paid internship program. Um, So, you know, lots of different levels there, but I think your point is very well taken.
0: Well, we've kept you a little bit longer than we expected, but thank you all for coming.